Well, it was a, a big week in the Crows household this week. On Friday, my wife and I celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary. I have known, for all intents and purposes, my wife for just over 11 years. We have been married for just almost exactly 10 of those And on Friday, we went out to celebrate. We've dressed up in clothes that we don't normally wear. I bought her flowers that I don't normally buy her. I wrote her a card that, sadly, I don't normally write her. And took her to a restaurant where I don't normally take her. And it was all in the name of celebrating 10 amazing years of marriage together. It was our way of really just honoring each other, recognizing each other. That's all, that's all that celebrating something like that is. It's carving some minutes out of your life to look at each other and say, I want you to understand just how amazing you are and how fortunate I feel to have gotten to spend the last 10 years of my life in this marriage with you. It's one of those things that we need periodically to stop and do for each other, that we need to hear from each other, to just be honored, to be acknowledged, to be recognized, to be told that you're awesome, and to be reminded, or to have somebody else remember how special you are. It's the kind of thing we need in our families, we need more of, just people looking at each other, parents, moms and dads, and saying, Everything you do for the family does not go unnoticed. It's amazing. You're awesome and thank you. Just be recognized. To be recognized at school or at work. To have somebody say to you, you know, the work that you did on that project, that made all the difference. We would be nowhere without you. You're amazing. Thank you. To have friends acknowledge it wherever. Just to have people say, I couldn't, you are something special. But there's something, I mean, it's something that we all need, it's something that we all crave, something that is essential for our emotional survival as human beings. And it's something that very easily can become a dark thing in our hearts. There's a subtle shift in your spirit that can happen when you go from needing some affirmation to angling for some affirmation. When you go from wanting to be recognized to doing things in order to be recognized. When you go from wanting to be acknowledged to living in a way to solicit people's acknowledgement. And that's what we've been talking about in this in this three-week series called God Likes This. We've been looking at Jesus' teachings about this issue that he calls righteousness, which is simply a way of saying what it looks like to live rightly in relationship with God and myself and each other and the world. And in this series, we've been looking specifically at what Jesus is talking about when it comes to living rightly in relationship with God. We've been rooted in Matthew chapter 6 verse 1 where it says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward 
from your Father in heaven. Jesus says, listen, when you live your spiritual life, when you live your life in relationship with God, when you do those things as a part of your religious life that are meant to express and nurture and develop and grow your love and devotion to God, don't do them, whatever they are, whether it's praying, fasting, giving, or attending worship, or reading the Bible, or volunteering, or being in community, or serving the shelter, whatever it is that you do to express and nurture and grow your love and devotion to God, don't do it for the recognition of other people. Don't do it in order to be noticed by others. Don't do it for what they are going to see and for what they're going to say. Because there's no reward in that. No spiritual reward. Jesus says, whatever you do in your life with God, do it to impress God, not people. Do it to please God, not others. Do it not because they like it, but because God likes this. So if you live your life before God, for God alone, Jesus says, well, that's just the most rewarding life you could possibly live. That a life of love lived out of a heart of love for God alone is the most abundant, rich, deep, satisfying, fulfilling, healthy, connected, empowered, inspired, peaceful life you could ever imagine, regardless of your circumstances. And we've been talking this month about how that's true of your giving. You don't give generously, especially to the poor, in order to be recognized as a generous person. You give because you love God, and that spills out of your life as a love for people. You do it for him, not to be noticed. You, when you pray, you don't pray in order to be recognized as a spiritual person, or conversely, you don't avoid praying in order to be thought of as an unspiritual person. You don't pray for what people will see and say about you. You pray for God and allow your heart of love for God to spill into a heart of love for other people. And what is true of our giving and what is true of our praying, Jesus says, is also true of our fasting. In Matthew 6.16, he says, when you fast, this is his third example, when you fast, fasting is a concept that is almost entirely unfamiliar to us in our culture. I mean, we fast, we fast for medical reasons, because I have a test tomorrow morning, I'm not allowed to eat or surgery. We fast for health reasons because, you know, I'm on a cleanse and I want to, you know, feel good about myself. We fast for physical reasons because beach season is coming and I'm, you know, I need to fit into that bathing suit. Or we fast, if you're really radical, for political reasons. You go on a hunger strike and try and affect political change. But, but Israel, especially in the first century, there were folks in Israel who fasted for spiritual reasons. It was primarily an activity that you did to express and to grow your love and devotion to God. In fact, at the core of the act of fasting in the Bible is a spirit of repentance over sin and a desire for forgiveness. Leviticus chapter 16 is the only time in the Old Testament Jewish religious law where the Jews were commanded to fast. It says this, starting in verse 19, it says, This is to be a lasting ordinance for you, that on the tenth day of the seventh month you must deny yourselves, you want to fast, and not do any work. 
whether native-born or a foreigner residing among you, because on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then, before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. It is a day of Sabbath rest, and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. That's the only command in the Old Testament that the Jews were commanded to fast. One day out of every year, you abstain from food and from work in order to set aside a day in the spirit of repentance over sin, in order to pray for forgiveness so that as the priests sacrifice in the temple, God would forgive the entire nation corporately and individually for whatever sin had accrued over the previous year. It was a day of atonement. Out of that single command to fast, on that one day every year, grew a zeal, I would say, among the Jews to fast. Um, By the end of the New Testament era, or Old Testament era, there was not just one fast on one day of one month every year. There were four national fasts every year. On the fourth month, the fifth month, the seventh month, and the tenth month, there were all nationally prescribed religious fasts. Throughout the history of the Old Testament, Old Testament leaders, whether priests or kings, are constantly calling the nation to fast, either to fast out of repentance and renewal of their relationship with God in order to receive forgiveness and to be transformed by God, or there was fasts in times of national crisis and war and and famine where they would plead with God for his help or protection. There were times when the nation fasted. There were times where individuals fasted. Where prophets would fast and mourn and pray over the sin of the people. Times where you know, King David fasted and prayed when people that he knew, his enemies even, got ill or were in trouble. There were people who fasted in preparation for a special assignment from God. Moses fasted for 40 days while he received the law, the Jewish religious law from God on Mount Sinai. Jesus fasted for 40 days in preparation for his ministry to to submit his entire life to the will of God. The apostle Paul fasted for three days after seeing a vision of the resurrected Jesus and he became a, a follower of Jesus Christ. And then the church fasted and prayed and sent Paul out as a missionary to bring the good news about Jesus all over the world. By the end of the biblical history, the Jews were fanatical about fasting. And no one was more fanatical than the Pharisees or the religious leaders. For them, where the Old Testament Jewish religious law commanded one fast on one day in one month every year, they committed themselves to fasting not one day a year, but two days a week. Instead of one 365th of their year being devoted to fasting, you know, one third of one percent, two sevenths, 30 percent of their year was spent fasting. From just after supper on Sunday to Monday supper time, just after supper on Wednesday to Thursday supper time, they did not eat, skip breakfast and lunch in order to fast. I mean, compared to the command to do that one time a year, that was intense. I don't think most of us understand what would motivate somebody to be so committed to fasting. Our culture 
sort of tilts us in the other direction. We are a culture of indulgence and excess. In fact, our entire culture is structured around the idea that no one should ever have to go without. Instead, indulge in all of the luxury and excess that our culture has to offer. That's what it was built for, so that you never had to go without. We are a culture that is focused on ourselves. And so in those moments when we do choose to fast, we choose to fast because we're going to get something out of it. We're fasting so that we can get healthy, or we're fasting so we can get in the bikini, or well, maybe not me, but we're fasting so that we can affect political change. If I'm going to go without, if I'm going to deprive myself, I expect to get something from it in the end. And I think that's where a lot of people have thought about what it means to fast spiritually. That the assumption is that what it means to fast is to come before God and to show him how serious and earnest and intense and devout you are. How devoted you are to him. How serious you're taking this by going without food until he finally caves in and gives you what you're asking for in prayer. It's kind of like a spiritual hunger strike. I will not eat until you say yes. And that's not what fasting is at all. In fact, for the Jews, fasting was a discipline that grew out of their love for God and their desire to identify with him. It it grew out of their desire to enter into the pain that God feels towards a world that is broken. It was a way of, of protesting with your whole body the way things shouldn't be of making tangible in your own physical body the pain of somebody else's divorce or war or disease or mental illness or grief or pain, whatever it is that they were going through, whatever it is that's going on in the world, you are taking the pain of the world and bringing it into your body. It was a way of entering into the pain of God over the brokenness of the world. It was a way of expressing physically the longing and the yearning that we feel that we and our friends and our lives and the world would be a different kind of place of begging God to intervene and to make this world the place that he always dreamed that it would be. I find it interesting that at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are so obsessed with themselves and their lives and their friends and their circumstances and the world being made right by God that they hunger and thirst over it. They are blessed for they will be filled. They will enter into the feasting of life in the kingdom of God when God finally brings healing and hope and restoration to the world such as it is. It's a way of praying with your stomach for things to be different. Fasting in the Bible is often associated with prayer because as you feel the pain of hunger settling into your system, you are prompted to pray for the relief from pain of whatever it is that you're fasting over. 
whatever brokenness you're identifying with. At some really practical level, in my own experiences of fasting, which are actually quite few, I, I fasted once when a friend was sick, and I went through a season of fasting every time I wrote a sermon, and our churches fasted a few times, fast for change, where we identify with the plight of the poor, and that's about it for me. But, but I've noticed when I fasted that fasting is like setting an internal notification on your body's smartphone. It's like tying a string around your finger. Every time your stomach growls, every time you feel a hunger pain, you are reminded to pray for the thing that is breaking your heart and prompting you to fast. It's a way of reminding yourself how feeble and weak and frail you are except uh, for that apart from everything that God provides for us, the, the Lord's Prayer says, Give us this day our daily bread. Everything we have, including the most basic of foods, is a gift from God. We, we need God for everything in our life. And without him, we are free, weak and frail and feeble. And it's a way of reminding ourselves of our dependence on him. <coughs> We're invited to fast, to identify with the pain of God over the brokenness of the world, and to pray to long, to yearn that he would intervene and make things right. And the Pharisees were committed to fasting like nobody else. So committed to fasting, actually, that Jesus had nothing but criticism for them. In Matthew 6, 16, this is what he says, when you fast... Do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. See, the, the funny thing about the Pharisees' fasting days, Monday and Thursday, is that they just so happen to coincidentally coincide with Israel's market days. You know the days when Everyone from the entire region, farmers, peasants, everyone would cram into the streets of every town and village in Israel in order to buy and sell whatever they needed to get by for the next few days. It was on Mondays and Thursdays that the crowds were at their peak. And the Pharisees knew how to play to the crowds. Jesus says they, they would disfigure their faces. They would walk around with grimaces and groaning and wearing the gloom, sad sullenness of hunger, looking gaunt and frail as though they were starving. They'd, they wouldn't wash on fast days. They would actually put dust and sackcloth on their head, which was a symbol of mourning in the ancient world. They would wear sackcloth, which was like an ancient funeral suit. And they would walk around every day or all day looking as though they were starving to death. Now, none of it was mandated by Jewish law. In fact, the rabbi said on fast days, feel free to go to work, feel free to wash, to shave, to, to wash your hair, you know, do your hair, dress up in your normal clothes, wear shoes, you know, go about your business as usual, just you know, skip your two meals. But the Pharisees wanted to push it that extra mile to make sure their fast was noticed, to get recognized for being spiritual. In fact, the text literally says they, they make their faces invisible, like unrecognizable. They make their faces invisible in order to be 
visible to people. In order to be visible. They wanted to be seen as the spiritual superheroes of the day. If it was the 21st century, they would have been posting on Facebook about how hungry they were, Instagramming a picture of their empty dinner plate. They would have been taking a, a selfie of their starving face. You know, the kind of people would say, oh, no, thank you, I can't, I'm, I'm fasting. You know, just quietly under the breath, oh, I'm so hungry because I'm fasting, you know. Oh, sorry, folks, that was my stomach, I'm fasting today. Jesus says, you don't, you don't do it that way. You don't fast in order to impress the crowds, in order to please people to make an impact or an impression to have people recognize you for being spiritual that's not the purpose you don't do it to impress people you do it to impress God you do it to impress them and you will impress them and they will admire you and they will be in awe of your spirituality but God will not be impressed and you will get no reward from him you didn't do it for him you did it for them and you got exactly what you came for Instead, Jesus says in verse 17, he says, but when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will be not obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your father who's unseen and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I find it interesting that to Jesus, it was just an assumption that we would fast. He says, when you fast, when, when you fast, that those who are followers of his would live with such a keen awareness of the brokenness in their life, the brokenness they see all around them, the brokenness that they see in the world, that they would be driven to fast, that, that those who want to live a life of love and devotion to him would want to enter into the pain of God over the brokenness of the world by fasting, that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness literally would be compelled to pray with their stomach and their mouth and their spirit that God would intervene and make right the world that is so very wrong in so many ways. That we'd be driven to fast. Now it doesn't say ever in the Bible there is no prescribed right or wrong way to fast. It doesn't tell you how many days to fast, how often to fast, how long to fast, what to fast from, what foods you can eat or can't eat. There's no, there's no prescription about how to do it. There's just this assumption that those who follow Christ would fast. Somebody has once said that satisfied stomachs lead to terrible spirits in prayer. You, you can't pray when your stomach is full. Not really. But you only get a sense for your desperation in prayer in the middle of a fast. Jesus makes the assumption that those who follow him would fast. And the only prescription to the fast is that when you fast, you do it in secret. He says, wash your face, put oil on your head. That was customary hygiene, but also the way you would get dolled up to go out and party in the first century world. Jesus says, don't walk around being somber. Don't complain about how hungry you are. Don't talk about it. Don't post about it. Don't photograph it. Don't, 
Don't mention it. Don't just dress up like you would on any other day. Go out and live your life and don't let anybody know that you're fasting because this is just between you and God. And if you do it that way, God who sees your spirit, who understands your motives, God will reward you. When you give, when you pray, when you fast, you do it for God alone. Jesus could have mentioned, by the way, many, many, many other examples inviting us to live our spiritual lives for God alone in order to experience the most rewarding spiritual payoff to living a life that's utterly devoted only to him. He could have done a whole paragraph that says, and when you read scripture, don't publish how much you read or how often you read. Don't publicize how faithful you are in reading or how many times you've read. Them. Don't talk about how much you read. Just read in secret between you and God. Now, I don't mind if people post to Facebook or whatever that they're reading what they've read in Scripture and how it encourages them. Whatever. It's when you do it in the spirit of just wanting people to know that you're reading Scripture. Jesus says, you don't need to do that. Don't read Scripture for what people will see and what they'll say. Do it for God alone. It could have talked about the way we attend worship and said, listen, when you attend worship, don't get all dressed up as though you're you know, going to meet the queen to try and demonstrate to people how uh, devout and, and, and reverent you are of God. Or he would have said, when you go to worship, don't dress down like you're going to some uh, monster truck rally like just to prove how casual and authentic you are. He might have said, don't, when you worship, when you sing, you know, don't stand there and raise your hands just to show people how sincere and wholehearted your praise is. But he might have said, when you sing, don't stand there and keep your hands at your side or cross your arms to show people how mature and respectable you are, that you don't have to resort to all sorts of hand-waving. Who cares what people will see and what people will say? Do it between you and God. He could have said, when you volunteer, don't volunteer to have all the upfront jobs on the stage under the lights where everybody can see you doing what you do and commenting to you later on how well you did. Hint, hint, I'll be down at the front after the service. Um, he says, or he might say, others of you don't in some false humility take all the background jobs, cleaning toilets and doing all the grubby, grimy stuff that nobody else will do so that people will think of you as humble and servant-hearted. Don't do it for what people will say or see, just do it between you and God. He might have said, when you participate in community, there are some of you who go and you would never, ever honestly share a word about what's actually really going on in your life, the brokenness that's actually inside, because you're, you want to maintain this image of having your life all put together, or you'd be too embarrassed to demonstrate that your life isn't all together. Or on the flip side, he might say there are others of you who go in the exact opposite spirit and who just barf your junk all over everybody even when they've never asked just because you want to demonstrate that you're genuine and sincere and authentic and open. Don't participate in community for what other people will see and what they'll say. Just do it between you and God. He might have talked about the way we serve the poor. The way we seem so eager sometimes to give a hand up to these poor souls who, for whatever reason, just couldn't 
save themselves from their own circumstance. He would have said, listen, none of that attitude. Just quietly behind the scenes, befriend somebody who is equally but differently just as messed up as you are and walk together in a journey towards me. Don't do it for what people will see or say. Just do it between you and God. And if you do it in that spirit of just you and God, that God alone matters, his opinion is the only one that counts, he says, then God will reward you. That's the most rewarding possible way to live, the most abundant, deep, satisfying, rich, healthy, connected, empowered, inspired, peaceful way you could ever imagine living. Living your life out of a heart of love for God, for God's eyes alone. I want to invite the band in each location to come to the stage and for the servers to go and get ready to serve communion. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together in just a minute. Maybe it's a bit odd on a Sunday about fasting to talk about celebrating the Lord's Supper together. We're going to eat to celebrate fasting, but but we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper because in the Lord's Supper is the example of Jesus who is God coming for you and stopping at nothing to give everything that he has for you alone. God gave everything for you. And now his invitation is for you to respond by giving everything back to him alone. He gave you his everything and now you give your everything, not to the crowds, not for recognition, not for approval or people pleasing. You give your everything to him out of a love for him, to worship him and honor him. God knows you've got mixed motives. I've got mixed motives. We all have mixed motives. We're all living for God and aware of what people are seeing in us But that's why Jesus died. To forgive us for all the ways that we just live for ourselves, live for approval, live for recognition, live to get something for ourselves out of life. Um, He died to forgive us and he was raised to fill us with the power of his spirit to transform us. So that we could in increasing ways become the people he created us to be. People whose lives are lived out of a heart of love for him that spills out of our lives as a heart of love for other people as we live our lives in love and devotion to him alone. So as we take this morning, the wafer and the juice as they come around, as we remember the body of Jesus hung on the cross, the blood that he spilled on our behalf, that we would experience forgiveness and transformation. Take the body and the blood, the bread and the juice, and as you take it, celebrate the fact that God gave his all for you. And take it as a prayer of commitment that you will give your all. To him alone. Let's pray together. Father, when we talk about what it looks like to live for your eyes only, when we talk about 
what it looks like for you to be our one desire, for our only motivation to be to please you, to honor you, to live life in a way that uh, comes out of a heart of love and devotion for you and to, to put aside all of the other motivations that we have, including recognition and, and, and being honored and noticed by the crowds around us, God, by what other people will see and say as we, as we just think about what it looks like to live out of love and devotion to you, God, we recognize all over again just how much we need Jesus. Because I care too much about me and I care too much about how I'm seen and I care too much about my reputation and I care too much about how people perceive my life and my life with you. And I need you to refine me. You gave your all for me. God, would you change me, fill me, transform me, all of us. Fill us with your spirit so that we become people who give our lives, give our everything only to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.